Costa Rica Travel Pass is a paid sponsor of Mormon Discussion Podcast. Costa Rica Travel Pass helps families enjoy Costa Rica flexibly, independently, and affordably. A family of four can enjoy a week in Costa Rica for under $1,200 plus airfare. If you're ready for an out-of-the-bus vacation that your family will always remember, visit Costa Rica Travel Pass at Costa Rica Travel Pass dot com or calling one eight seven 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 eight zero seven two seven seven. Mormon Discussion Podcast is an effort to help Latter day Saints like you strengthen your faith and to support you in your trials of faith. This podcast operates on the donations of listeners like you. To help this podcast, please consider making a donation at Mormondiscussion.podbean.com on the right hand side about halfway down. Thank you. Come thou bound of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for songs Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion. Glad to have you with us today. You can reach me by email at realmormon at gmail.com. That's R-E-E-L-M-O-R-M-O-N at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook under LDS Leadership Principles. And you can also find this podcast on iTunes as well as on its host site, mormondiscussion.podbean.com. Today on Mormon Discussion, we interview Brittany Hartley. Our conversation centers on not only her faith journey, but also the kind of framework we might adopt to better support the sisters of the church with the issues that concern them and the trials of their faith. Now on to part one of my conversation with Brittany Hartley. Brittany Hartley, welcome to Mormon Discussion. Thank you. Nice to be here. Excellent. Would you mind, uh, for our listeners, start off by introducing... Uh, us to you. Sure. Um, so my name is Brittany Hartley, and I was born of goodly parents and raised in the church. I grew up in Las Vegas, and both my parents are teachers. My dad's a professor, um, and my mom teaches chemistry and physics. And I grew up happily in the church. Um, I had a good family life. I've always been addicted to the written word. I've loved reading and was raised on classic literature and music and movies. Um, our dinner discussions around the table. Um, I have three brothers as well and, um, were very intense and challenging even at a young age. And I enjoyed the discourse and learning how to form and support opinions in our adult age. It's become quite embarrassing to go to restaurants because we always talk about the two things you're not supposed to at the dinner table, which is religion and politics. And we get quite, quite loud trying to get a word in. And so I had a, you know, happy childhood um, growing up in the church. And then about the age of 15, I began, I began to really ask questions about the church. And none of these were particularly difficult questions. Um, but in my studies, I saw good people in every country and every religion. And I couldn't see the path of the gospel that lied underneath all the rules and rituals that you experience as a youth in the church and the for strength of, you know, the youth manual. 
And I asked a lot of questions, a lot of why questions that no one could answer. And I concluded at this time that the church that I was raised in was just like any other church. And I began to, I began to search for something more. And at that time, at the age of 15, I left the church. Um, by this time, I was living with an aunt and uncle in high school, and I tried on each of the other major religions, and I continued to delve into my passion, which is philosophy. And through a, wa- a roundabout way, I ended up reading some Mormon apologetics, um, specifically from my favorite Mormon philosopher, a BYU professor by the name of David Paulson, who's doing great work in that field. And in reading the deeper level of Mormon doctrine, I was able to find the very gospel that I was looking for, but I found it in the religion that I was raised in. Gotcha. You might have asked a couple questions. So you talk about being a, a young adult and your family kind of had this open dialogue at the dinner table. Uh, you said specifically religion and politics and that these conversations would be kind of maybe heated at times. Did you feel like there was a freedom in your home to explore deeper issues, to um, have those kinds of intellectual conversations and to think things through maybe on a deeper level than the, than the rest of us? Definitely. Um, my I come from a long line of teachers, and my, my parents are both teachers, and they were very supportive in um, you know talking about those things and having an open dialogue and um, not having the church be so black and white, but having, you know, there be opinions in the church, um, apart from your faith. And, um, I enjoyed it. It's very much a part of who I am and I enjoyed it. Um, eventually, you know, for the sake of my brothers and being a good example, I eventually went to, to live with other relatives, um, when I had decided that I didn't believe in the church. Um, but they continued to be supportive of um of me and you know what I was doing and wherever I was gotcha so Brittany when you were you said that you left the church and lost your belief in that you came back into after uh, a journey exploring other faiths other ways of thinking about things that you came back into the church can you explain maybe that process a little bit more it's kind of interesting to hear somebody who loses faith in what they were taught, then gains a deeper understanding of what that faith really was and then comes back to it. Can you maybe talk about that a little bit? So, yeah, so that process um, was one that included a lot of study for me. And I think as a youth, I depended too much on what other people said to me and what I saw and kind of the rules and the rituals that you go through, and you can do all of those things without really understanding them and without really having a true testimony, which it's clear, you know, at this point that um, because I was able to leave the church, I, I didn't have that true testimony. As I began to study Mormon apologetics, specifically Mormon philosophy, I was able to then see the reasons why and the beauty of the gospel that lied underneath all these things. And it's there. I mean, it exists in the church, and if I would have... Um, you know, studied on my own, I probably could have avoided, you know, leaving the church at a young age. But, you know, I was, I was a kid and I, I looked to what I saw and what people told me and asking Sunday school questions and not, you know, being able to get answers that made any sense. And I trusted in that to the point that, um, it just seemed like any other church to me with, with any other rituals that, that all churches have. And so I, I left it searching for something more. And then, and then I, and then found it um, in the end 
in the church that I was raised in. So, Brittany, you said that you eventually regained faith uh, in the church. Where did things go from there? So um, at that point, then I, gr- I graduated high school. I was back into the church. My family, you know, welcomed me back with open arms. Um, I went to BYU-Idaho. I got a degree in history and social studies with an emphasis in philosophy. Um, I got married in the temple and then short after got a job as a history government and philosophy teacher, a soccer coach and young women's president all within one week um, when I was 22. And um, for five years after that, I put my heart and soul into that work. I loved the people that I worked with. I loved being in ward councils and, and learning and continually discussing and studying with other people. Um, and then it was about one year ago, last year I had my first child. I had a son, his name's Riker. And it was at that time that I, I took a break off of work. I was released from my calling and I really had time to myself. And I decided at this time that I would undertake a deep study on early church history. And this is the time in my life, um, I was 27 or 26, and this is the time in my life that I would really say I, I experienced a faith crisis, the, the kind of faith crisis that you've talked about in your other podcasts. Um, I would put my son down for bed at six or seven, and I would go into a spare bedroom in my house, and I would study and ponder into the wee hours in the morning, and I would do this every night. And it was the first time that I really got a hold of, you know, the less squeaky version of Joseph Smith, of real criticisms of the church, of polygamy, of high-level mistakes, of racism and sexism, and difficult co- concepts of doctrine like polyandry. Um, and during this time, my family was not very supportive. They thought maybe I had gone too far in my in my studies, that I was losing my faith. Um I had a bishop who was very fundamentalist Mormon kind of guy, a real scoutmaster kind of guy who accused me of being disobedient. And I, I really felt like I was being split in two and that the church was asking me to either think or believe, but that I couldn't do both. Gotcha. Were your parents, I mean, as, as many discussions as you guys have, had had, were your parents unaware of the the deeper issues, the uh, non-Sunday school history that, that actually is part of the of the truth. I would say I would I wouldn't say that they were unaware. I would say more so that they they didn't get into the level um, of depth. And as a history in philosophy person, uh, I get into I you know I, I get into it a little bit deeper than than someone who's just reading a book or studying it. Um, and you know their their faith is very strong by now, and they've learned to kind of just roll with these kind of things. Um, but I. I wanted to understand it and I wanted to get at the root of it. And I wanted, you know, there's some issues that you have to work through when you go through a deeper study of, of the early church. Um, so they were supportive, but they weren't where, where I was. And unless you have been there in a kind of faith crisis, um, you can't fully understand what that feels like, I suppose. Right. No, that's, that's very true. Did you, did, was there anybody in your life that was able to kind of take what you were talking about, what you were going through, and offer you answers or new ways to think through things, or were you kind of on your own? I was completely on my own. Um, I tried through my ward. I tried talking to people. I tried um, talking to my family. I tried to find books. Um, I especially tried to tried to find books that. Um, you know, were specific to the fact that, you know, I'm a woman. 
and women look at things sometimes differently and have a different set of issues and different experience in the church. And I really, I really didn't find anything. And so I, I, uh, eventually through some serious historical work and study and, and pondering at the end of it, I took it, I laid it all before the Lord and received revelation and I was able to get through it. But if it weren't through my ability to read and study and for my ability through callings to be able to know how to access personal revelation, I'm not sure I would have made it. I live in, I currently live in Idaho. It's a very conservative area. Um, a lot of people who have been raised in the church kind of thing. And I really didn't feel any support while I was going through this. And there wasn't one person that I felt like I could talk to. You know, you talked about um, your bishop being very fundamental. And, and, and a lot of members of the church are that way. And so they're very uh, reserved when it comes to handling people who are thinking about these things and going through this stuff. I, I certainly can sympathize with you there. I, I wish that we were doing more things to help members who were struggling like that to to not feel pushed away or as an outcast, but rather to, to kind of be accepted. You also talked about having this revelation. I'll just share one thought with you here, and we'll kind of move forward. But ha- having, you know, you and I have had a couple conversations back and forth by email kind of setting this up, and you obviously have listened to some of the other podcasts that I've done. And maybe to some extent you'll agree with this, but I, I found answers at times to some of the questions as I researched things, but it wasn't until a revelatory experience happened that really provided a much easier, smoother way to move out of that crisis. And it seems like that was the case in your situation as well. Absolutely. Uh, when you get into studies, specifically when you get into, um, you know, this account says this and this account says that and, and it wasn't a, you know, there wasn't a perfect history kept of the early church and you have to do some work to, to find out what was going on and to try to wrap your head around some of these issues. Um, and eventually you get to the end of that road and I've read everything that I could read and I've thought about this and I've attacked this and, it, you know, I've done my homework. I've done everything that I could of my own accord to try to wrap my head around some of these, these tougher issues. And eventually at that point, when you're at the end of your road, you can then go to the Lord with your homework done and say, you know, this is the best that I can do. You know, I need, I need help with this. And through those moments, I was able to then, um, receive revelation that made everything fit in my mind. And then I was able to put my reason and my faith back together and put myself back together and, and, you know, become, be a member of the church again, you know, with, with full heart. Awesome. This this may be kind of seem like an unusual question, but I, I think that your situation and those who listen to this podcast, it's kind of an interesting point. But what? Why do you think it is that some people seem to get answers when their backs against the wall in this this dark night of the soul? And why is it? This is just your opinion. Why do you think some don't? Um. That's a tough question because I, some of that has to, you know, deal with why can some people receive revelation or why does God speak to some and not to others? And for that, you know, you'll have to ask God. I'm not sure why, but, but I do know in, in matters of faith that when you do your homework and when your heart is 100% full intent asking a question 
And what, when I'm, what I mean by that is a lot of people who ask questions to God, whatever the answer will be, um, they may not follow it, you know. But when you're at, sure. when your back is to the wall and you ask God a question, you are 100%, your heart is full of, you know, pure intent. You've done your homework. You've done the best that you can do. I think that is when God is sympathetic because, you know, you've done your work and, um, it's at that point that he can then speak to you. And, and I think in many cases, I think that's 100% right on. As we know, you know, there's this trial that comes before those, uh, those miraculous events or those spiritual experiences and, and we kind of have to work through those things as far as we can go. And then at that point have to rely on the Savior and, and on the, on the Holy Ghost. So. And on that, it's, it's hard to say, you know, how you can recreate those moments, um, because it's all a matter of heart. And that's, that's something that, you know, we can't really weigh when you're talking to someone else or judging someone else. Um, but it is all a matter of heart. When you're in those moments, if, if God were to tell you that to leave the church or God were to tell you to stay in the church or God were to, explain something, you would be completely 100%, you know, be able to follow whatever he said because your your back's against the wall and you're just seeking to understand. Um, and it's in those moments when you really truly would be obedient and believe whatever God tells you um, in those revelatory moments that, that the Spirit can then can then really work with you. That's beautiful. So you you have this revelatory experience, you have the spiritual experience of the Holy Ghost, you get the answer that you're pleading for, you begin to go forward in faith. Where does uh, where does your journey go from there? Um so from there I you know I, I have a I have a son now. I've taken time off of my career and I currently just have a calling um teaching the youth in my ward and um since going through that process I'm now kind of committed to this idea of what can I do or how can I help um, the church from within to be able to change, to help people like me, both as a youth and as an adult? I had to work so hard and try so hard to, you know, discover um, the depth of the gospel and to work through these issues. And I had to do it completely alone. And so at this point now, um, I'm active in the church and um love my life here in Idaho with my with my husband and my son and I'm trying to you know do whatever I can to help the church get more resources and have a better platform for people like me so that hopefully it won't be so difficult in the future for for people to find the gospel and to to really you know fall in love with it and and get to those deeper things excellent i don't know that i could have said it any better than that that's great so the reason you and I have had a conversation leading up to this interview and have planned this interview is that you and I both see a need for those within our wards and stakes to better support the sisters of the church. And so in our conversations, we've talked about several issues, and there were some that you wanted to focus on, some that you wanted to at least cover here along the way. And so let's kind of start doing that. Maybe... Do you want to give us kind of an introduction to um, why these issues, and then we'll kind of go into them, essentially kind of setting up the reasoning behind why we're going to talk about these things? Sure. So it's at this point that um, I, you know, I was I was young women's president, so I was always in 
in the Young Women's. And it's at this point in the past year that, you know, I've gone to Relief Society now and really, you know, begun to become more active in the church. I was always, I, you know, I had a career and I had a calling. And so, you know, I did my own thing. And, and now in, in talking to other women, specifically in the Relief Society and, and, um, throughout my area and my stakes, I've, I've noticed and then have done some study to kind of support this, that there's this huge problem in the church that I'm now, um, really committed to trying to address. And this problem is this, epidemic of depression among Mormon women. That kind of leads us into the first item that we want to talk about, which is is depression. And I agree with you. I think on some level, over the years, the church has really tried to downplay the depression of the women within the church. I know serving out here in, in Sandusky, Ohio, and being a member of the church here, I've had numerous sisters uh, approach me who have who have needed help to deal with depression, who have felt um, unworthy or have felt they're not measuring up when there really wasn't any worthiness issue there. It was simply just feeling like there was a bar in the gospel and not meeting it. What do you see as the problem and perhaps what do you see as things that we can do better to address this? Sure. So, of course, as a bishop, you'll, you'll have experienced this, but, um, I really believe that this issue of, of depression among Mormon women in the church is an epidemic. It, there, you know, it's said that in Utah that, um, or in the nation that the highest subculture of people on Prozac are Mormon women, specifically Mormon women living in Utah. And this was always curious to me, since if this was the true gospel, then Mormons should be some of the happiest people on earth. But but for women, there's a part of the gospel message that is being missed. And there's a lot of names for this um, spiritual burnout, Mormon guilt, self-criticizing, trying to access salvation by works, depression, inactivity. All these things are related to this idea where a woman believes that the, that the church may be true, but can no longer carry the load. And then they leave the church or sometimes even more damaging, they stay in the church for their families, but their hearts are no longer there. And so I, I've really been wondering about this and wondering what we need to be doing about this. Um, because the atonement and this, the message of grace and the finer points of doctrine on perfection and sanctification and justification in this core of the gospel somehow is not getting received um, by our Mormon women. And so what we are finding in the church is what I like to call to-do list Mormons. And this is where a Mormon goes to Relief Society. She gets a list of activities and things to do and a lesson on how to be better on some aspect of perfection. And falsely assumes then that if she were to get her whole to-do list done, she would be happy. So that week she tries to have family home evenings, tries to be a good business teacher, be an involved mother, bake bread for the homeless, and on and on and on. And at the end of the week, her list is undone and she's still unhappy. And so these poor women are on paper doing everything that they're supposed to do, but they're running on spiritual empty because they're never actually feeding on the core of the gospel. They're never actually drinking the living water. And so they assume that they're unhappy because their scripture study needs to be better. They need to be more like sister so-and-so. And And then eventually you get this vicious cycle of self-loathing and self-doubt and depression. 
And we hear these these stories that just break my heart of Relief Society presidents who become inactive and drop out because they feel their burden is too big for them to carry. And the sad thing that is going on when you ask a room full of Mormon women if they feel like the gospel in their lives makes their low makes their yoke easier and their burden lighter, as said in the scriptures, their answer is no. And in these same lectures, um, when I do give an address on the nature of the atonement and grace and covenants and the true path of the gospel that underlies all the culture and, ris- and rituals, I see women look at me just with tears in their eyes as if they were starving and I was giving them food. And I see burdens be lifted and for them to once again have hope. And so I'm wondering how, you know, that this message is somehow being missed and causing this kind of um, spiritual burnout or to-do list women in the church. And, and I consider it to be a problem that we're eventually going to have to address. Do you, do you think it comes from, as a culture, we've completely misunderstood Second Nephi 25, 23, the whole being saved after all we can do? I think that's part of it. I think it does take some, I, I think it does take some work to understand scriptures like that or scriptures like, um, you know, be therefore perfect. And sometimes, um, there are misconceptions about that and we need to clear up some of the doctrine on that specifically in our manuals to be able to, to really get to the core of the gospel. But the second issue is that this isn't just a problem for the church in general. Um, you know, missing some of these core principles of the gospel. This is specifically even a bigger problem for women because there are great resources out there. There are great books out there that explain these things that really help you to understand the atonement. The unfortunate thing is that the majority of these books and the majority of these, you know, church leadership opportunities or wherever you would hear these things are either for men or by men and and not for women by women. And so it, it, it adds another, you know, element to this problem. Right. You know, I gave a, a lesson in our ward probably five years ago or so, and I used Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ, which I'm, I'm assuming from the way you're talking, you've read that one. I have, yes. Okay. So I, I used his book kind of as a backdrop and sharing the exact same message you're talking about. I went into a combined lesson with Relief Society and Priesthood, and speaking specifically to Relief Society, shared the story that uh, Brother Robinson shares from where his wife had a essentially a nervous breakdown mm-hmm. and threw in the towel. And as I shared that story and then talked at the end about Christ's grace and how we need to stop having the checklist, just as you're pointing out, numerous sisters in that lesson were teary-eyed and weeping, and it was obvious that up until that moment, they felt like they felt like there was a checklist, and they weren't accomplishing it, and therefore, in some way, shape, or form, they were falling short. And so, I agree that it's definitely an issue. I want to want to get to your later talking about um, finding more sisters within the church to to share these viewpoints, so that it's not just coming from men. Um, and you talked about how. Christ essentially can, you know, share his yoke with us and make things easier, and yet the sisters don't see that. And I and I know that the problem isn't as prevalent among the men of the church, but I certainly think that this is a church-wide issue for everybody, that we've got to find a way 
to focus more on the grace of Christ. Right. And to let go of the, the pure obedience side of things. Um, not that obedience isn't important, not that it doesn't serve a function, not that it doesn't help us to reach higher, but that it's not the end-all, be-all of Christ's love for us and his work to get us back to him. Right, and so the the reason that this is specifically harder on women is, I think, because of their good nature. And what happens is um, women are empathetic, and they are loving by nature, and they are more likely to, you know, feel what others feel. And so when you get up in Relief Society and someone gives an announcement that there are starving children in Africa and we're going to, you know, we need to sew quilts for them, Women are more likely than men, you know, going to feel that and going to want to help. And so it's it's not that women um, aren't understanding these things or, you know, are un- incapable of understanding these things. It's more so that that women, by their nature, because they are more empathetic, because they want to help and love everyone, um, eventually then take on so much that, um, you know, they're they're burning out. And then they're not realizing that if they access the atonement and, and grace and their own personal spiritual path first, that then they'll have the desire to do these other things rather than have it the other way around. That's the problem with, with thinking about, you know, works-based, um, salvation is that there's a lot of Mormon women who think I can only pray and go to the temple if I do all my to-do list, if I, read my scriptures every day and if I do my visiting teaching and if I do everything right then I can access God and really it's the other way around we need to access the atonement first and then when you get that you know when you get that ease of burden and when you get that um, love and help and grace from the atonement you then have the desire to serve and and it's the other way around right when um, when you share the grace of Jesus Christ with the sisters in your ward or your friends that you that you associate with or other members of the church, do you feel like those thoughts stick or is it kind of a short-term fix and these sisters go right back to the checklist? Um, you know, it, it depends. It depends on their willingness. Um, like you, I've had many um, talks and lessons and I've even done um, Relief Society activities where I've spoken on a broader basis about these things. And just the women that come to me afterwards in tears, you know, really as if they're hearing the core of the gospel for the first time, you know, they, they finally have hope in all these great things that are promised in the gospel that they've somehow missed before. Um, and some of them at that point then ask me, you know, how to continue and, and how to continue on this path. And, and those who get that spark and are really desirous will then go and then try to find resources and read to better understand it, to better apply it to their lives. Um, but if they don't have that um, process already, you know, developed within them that they can go and study and pray on their own and still are depending on the church, then eventually they'll go back. Along with the sisters of the church being maybe more susceptible to feeling guilt over not meeting the checklist, do you also also think that the sisters perhaps are going to benefit greater? How should I say it? I'm going to try to word this the right way. Um, grace is an emotional issue. Grace is a a feel good. It's not 
it's nothing I can, you know, as a, as a man, and I, and I'm not trying to, one of the things I'm always trying to be careful of, you and I talked about this a little bit, as I approach this podcast, it's very easy to say all men are this way and all women are that way, and I'll offend half my listeners in doing that, and I don't want to do that, but I do want to say generally speaking, men are much more, men are different than women. They're yes. much more logical based perhaps, and focusing on the information rather than the emotion that's tied to it. And grace really isn't an informational subject. It's really something that has to be felt to be completely understood. And so do you see the sisters in the church, once they grasp this idea, this doctrine, and really grasp it for what it is, that they're actually going to benefit greater than the brethren of the church do from understanding it? I also don't want to, you know, put people in in uh, in boxes here. There is a difference between men and women. Um, when I was teaching history, for example, um, the men, there was half men and half women in my faculty, and the men history teachers, when we were doing World War II, they would get really into detail about all the different kinds of airplanes in World War II. And they all got into it, and all the boys in their class got into it, and they had all their model planes, and it was so cool. And in contrast, the women history teachers were more likely than the men to actually have their students feel the Holocaust, feel those soul-searching questions like, if I was a Nazi at that time, would I have done it, and this kind of thing, and to actually feel the weight of the thought that, you know, six million Jews are dead, and this kind of thing. And so... The way then to go about teaching grace to these women is not purely by listing, like in manuals, here's some scriptures to read, here is, um, you know, some definitions of sanctification and justification and all these things. Um, that's, that's not really reaching our women. Women do feel. And it's not a crime to feel, and it's not, specifically in the church, it's not a bad thing to feel. In fact, it's a, I would consider it a strength. Um, and so what I find is if we can find a way to get this message of, of grace and the atonement, but not through listing things and not through um, trying to go through definition after definition, but actually making it more real so that these women can feel grace, can feel the atonement, can feel hope, can feel the good news, um, that's when we're really going to start to see changes um, for women, and that's when we're really going to see that the message is being taken on when they can when they can feel um, their burdens being lifted through the atonement. Awesome. So recognizing that we don't have a lot of material from sisters in the church yet teaching this principle and acknowledging that, can we can we take a moment maybe and just talk about some of the um, positive things that are out there. So for, for my listeners who are wondering more about grace and who perhaps grew up with this view of, of the checklist, the all I can do, what are some things that are out there besides Stephen Robinson's book, Believing Christ, that you've encountered that have been a benefit to you? The greatest one when people ask, when people ask me, you know, how can I, how can I research this more? Um, my favorite LDS author is a is a guy by the name of Robert Millet, and um, he's a professor at, at BYU. And he there's just a little it's a very small book, 
women often, you know, often have children and their time to read to themselves is sometimes limited. And it's, it's a very small book and it's called Within Reach. And, um, that's been really my go-to book that I recommend when a woman is, um, wanting to really feel and access grace and really, um, feel like this, this book particularly talks about what it means to have perfection in this life, perfection through covenant, perfection through Christ and perfection in yourself, which is far, far, far into the future after, you know, after we even leave this life. And, um, there's some great messages in there that have helped women to, um, stop trying to be perfect before they can access God and really see it as a process. Um, there are other, other books. Um, this podcast, you know, is, is great in talking about, um, specifically your podcast on the doctrine of Christ, um, I think was really good. And there's, there's other programs like it. Uh, but that is, that's my, you know, go-to book if I were to recommend someone a reading. Have you, have you listened to, um, Brad Wilcox yet in his, um, uh, My Grace is Sufficient? Have you heard that talk? I have not. Oh, you've got, you've got to check it out. And, uh, when we post this podcast, I will put up some links to some of Brother Millet's work. And I will also, uh, put up Brother Wilcox's talk as well. I think from the way you're talking, you would, you would, and I think my listeners would really enjoy, uh, his talk. Um, he also has a book, which I believe is called The Continuous Atonement. Um, and Brother Millet and Brother Wilcox use a lot of the same language when they're describing, um, grace and, and the way that it works. Right. So going from depression and and seeing the problem, talking about how we need to have more voices from our sisters in addressing it so that our sisters get get it in their own voice and also realizing we just have to talk about it much more often on both sides of, of whether it be the brethren or the sisters. Do you see any other things that we can do specifically to to address this? Yeah, so um what I think to be the bridge between these books, you know, by talks by Brad Wilcox or um David Paulson or Robert Millet and the general populace of Mormon women, the the bridge between those two things I think is going to be intellectual women. And so what I really see as happening in the future is, is as there's a bigger platform and some changes happen in the church that um, support the idea of intellectual women within the church, you'll start to see then books like the one that I just mentioned or like that you've read by women. And I have yet to find a, a perfect book that I would recommend for a woman about these kinds of things. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, a lot of times, you know, women have children. It's much less likely that a woman, you know, is a BYU professor with a PhD in ancient scripture or whatever the case to be able to write and be supported by, um, you know, Desert News or something like that. And there's lots of reasons why there's not more intellectual women in the church. And to me, addressing those issues is going to be the real way that we get these messages that often come through books and talks um, by men get these messaged get these messages to women. 
Right, right. And so that kind of leads into a couple other things that you wanted to, to talk about and I wanted to talk about. So one of the other things you listed was that we would have more female guidance in the church for our sisters. Um, would you mind explaining that one a little bit? Sure. So one of the things that I think would help for there to be a safe platform for women to discuss these things is that if, if I'm struggling with something, um, let's even say, you know, for intellectual women, the struggle is often related to Joseph Smith or polygamy. Um, that in the church is usually the issue that, you know, you're going to have to work through more as a woman even than as a man because it affects, it affects women and has a lot more questions about women um, than it would a man. And in the church, you... In your other podcasts of other guests who have gone through faith crisis, they also, they, they often mention that they have found someone in the church to talk to, you know, that had this great expansive library or, or would, they would go over to their house and sit and talk and work through some of these things and be heard. And that was very helpful. And for women, there's not really that person. Um, we can go to the bishop or the stake president sometimes, but, um, and that's helpful for things like, you know, and necessary for things like repentance. But this issue is not about unworthiness or repentance. This is about working through some things in the gospel. And so I think in the future, if we had some of the more therapeutic work that the bishop does being delegated to the Relief Society presidents and other women in the church and for strong, knowledgeable women in the church to actually rise up in leadership, um, there would be more healthy communication among women because women, we talk to our husbands, we talk to our bishop, we may talk to a state president, but when do we really ever talk to other women leaders in the church? Um, only, even as young women's president, there were very few times that I was able to meet with other leader women in the church. It was It was usually... Um, you know, our trainings were usually by men. And so I think that this is one of the things that we'll see in the church, um, that will have to grow is, is, um, communication and leadership and discussion and a safe platform and that kind of thing among women. And you can do this without women, you know, burning their bras and asking for the priesthood. This is, this is really about, you know, women reaching out to women. Right. There's, there's no doctrinal conflict here. I mean, the bishops serve as judges in Israel for matters of worthiness, but outside of that, there's no reason why policies at some point, or if the Lord chooses to give a revelation to to change the way this is set up to allow some sisters in the church to also be able to offer counseling. It, it does make sense. I mean, you have sisters who have a need to ask questions and think about things and to ask how others think about things and yet it's always the priesthood or the brother in the church who is simply sharing perhaps how he thinks through those things but again recognizing that on some level men and women are different certainly would be more supportive to to have a sister be able to share with another sister right how that thinking process goes and so there's so there's this problem that if there was someone in my stake a woman in my stake who could help me or who was knowledgeable on these things or had gone through a faith crisis there would be no way for me to access her there would be no way for me to talk to her to you know for her to teach or for her to for us to ever come into contact 
or um you know at this point women in the church usually have children she has children perhaps she doesn't publish being on the end you know being on the edge of sleep deprivation you know doesn't make for very good academic work and so it's you know there's this you know women in the church are less likely to publish um and i think over time we'll see that change and we'll see um, as the church grows and deals with some of these issues that we'll start to see there be connections between women um and we'll see this message get across better. I hope that's the case. I hope that uh, our sisters who are out there who feel alone in one facet or another because they can't, they're not sure where to go and not sure how to get answers to the questions that they've got, I hope that as we move forward we find ways to to better reach out to them. And, I, and I'm certainly not uh, minimizing the effect of the Holy Ghost or the fact that when our our bishops or our stake presidents are counseling the sisters in the church that they're not inspired from on high to give good guidance and counseling. But but sometimes it's just a matter of having that conversation with, with another sister and just being able to talk about how how those things are thought through and and that alone can sometimes be a, a great help in, in some of these situations. Yeah, and I think that um only other Mormon women know truly know the to do list of a Mormon woman and that right. burden and what it feels like to love your children and love your community and want to do everything and just be spiritually burned out. That's when we're specifically talking about this, this depression kind of thing in the church. Um, I think it is, it's going to be women, you know, speaking with other women. Um, that's going to be the most help. Awesome. So going from there, one of the other points you, you made was that we need to be, more well-rounded or a more well-roundedness in our current programs. Would you mind explaining what you mean by that? Sure. So of the many reasons why there's not more intellectual women in the church, um, a lot of these things are cultural and are um, not based on doctrine. And so I'm hoping to see over time that feminist or intellectual movements within the church um, actually, you know, fight for those things that would be helpful for women without going so far as to, you know, ask for the priesthood or want a, you know, woman president. But there are some things that exist in the church that are because of culture and because of tradition and are not necessarily based on doctrine and that need to change in order to help women become all that they can be. Um, so as far as programs in the church, um, one of the reasons we don't have more intellectual women in the church is, um, there is this, uh, in the programs in the church and Relief Society and in Young Women's, they're trying in these programs to develop women to be, you know, good homemakers and to, you know, be strong women. And a lot of these programs are very outdated in the sense that they're not addressing what it means to be a woman homemaker of today. A hundred years ago, it was very necessary for you to share recipes and to, you know, learn how to do laundry or to make your home better or um, share tips on raising children and all these things. And now, since, you know, since the Internet is here and you can find all those things. Um, the church has yet to really answer 
what it means to be a Mormon woman today, what it means to be a good homemaker today. And so we have yet, the the Mormon culture has yet to catch up, and there's a lot of pushback, you know, trying to hold on to the fact that we are proud that our women, you know, marry and have children and are family-oriented, but that you can do that and still let go of the sewing. Um, it is much cheaper nowadays to go and buy a quilt than it is to buy the materials and sew it yourself. Um, and so we're seeing this shift of this need for, for other things in the church, for, um, for different kinds of women to be a part of the church, not just women who enjoy doing crafts. Gotcha. Do, do you think the new youth program kind of puts us on a good foot heading in that direction? Definitely. Um, I love the changes that's, that's going on with the youth to make it more real, um, and less, you know, your, your questions that you just give your seminary, seminary answers and the youth, you know, just zone out. Um, I think the, the recent changes in, in the gospel instruction for the youth is definitely a step in the right direction, really accessing what is, what is real and what is underneath and what is, um, what is underneath those rules that they already know and what those, and those answers that they already know. Yeah, it seems like the new program delves a lot more into the doctrine and principles and tends to get a, much more away from culture, whether it's old cultural concepts or even, even some new ones. It, it just tends to allow flexibility for us to stay focused on the gospel and its pureness, but yet that flexibility to be able to uh, adapt it to the needs of whatever part of the world uh, that teacher is teaching that class. Right, and the freedom I think is a great thing and a great step for the church, and it made me very proud when I when I heard about the changes going on there because a lot of times you think a good teacher just goes, you know, just reads the manual, and um, so then it created a society of of manuals and curriculum and people not getting past that and not having their own sense of spirituality and right and wrong in their own relationship with God and their own studies. Um, and so by taking out the curriculum and the manuals um, and giving teachers more freedom, I think it then makes the gospel more real. This is, this is what I believe kind of thing. Sure. And I also think that one of the side effects we're going to see from this program is that as brethren and sisters, but I think even greater on the sisters end as brothers and sisters, prepare their lessons without just reading a script and begin to rely more on the spirit, begin to rely more on getting outside their comfort zone and being able to just stand and talk to the youth. I think you're also going to see sacrament talks improve in other forms in the church of teaching where, where we can just set everything down for a moment, look everybody in the eyes and just teach with the spirit. And I think that will, following up will help out in some of these other issues you raise where the sisters in the church will be able to feel more comfortable not just reading some priesthood holders talk from conference and putting things down and simply by the Holy Ghost telling the other sisters and teaching these principles and, and talking about these doctrines. Um, and, I, and I see this as a huge positive jump five, ten years from now in the spiritual strength of our members, and I think it's going to be even a bigger leap 
uh, for our sisters in the church. I definitely think so. When you look back at the early church and how church was run, someone would get up and share their thoughts on, you know, a certain point of doctrine, and they may be inspired to sing a certain song, or someone may pray, and it was really led by the Spirit, and there were these beautiful meetings, and as the church grew, there became the need for manuals and curriculums, but we came, you know, we became too dependent on them, and we lost the spirituality, and so um, this change is coming back from that back to, you know, really truly being led by the Spirit, and what things are really core about the gospel that the Spirit will witness unto you rather than being so dependent on on manuals. Yeah, it seems like we started off going way too far in one extreme of allowing everybody to kind of just teach what they wanted and then going to the other extreme, which was to have it too too rigid, Mm -hmm. too spelled out. And now it seems like we found that beautiful middle where the doctrine is laid out plainly, but everyone has the freedom to use their own examples and to... Um, set the material down and, and just teach by the Holy Ghost. Mm-hmm. Um, the the next one that you went into, and this is kind of the dreaded one for me of talking about, is uh, clarity on polygamy and helping our sisters to better understand um, this issue so that they're not they're not having this sense of guilt or dread over what perhaps lays ahead in the in the life hereafter. Would you mind? Maybe talking about that issue a little bit. Sure, and this is this this will be specifically for intellectual women in the church. This will be the hardest issue that that you know you usually you have to grapple with. And um, there's two really things that I want to get across on this issue. And and one is that um, there is a certain amount of faith that has to be taken on when you are going into the study of polygamy. And the reason that is, is that, for example, we don't know, um, we know that we have some kind of heavenly mother or that there are females, um, that they're just not males in existence. Um, but we don't know anything about that. We don't know if your heavenly mother is the same as my heavenly mother. We don't know um, about her and God out of respect for her, specifically because of how much we blaspheme the name of God in this world, um, has, hasn't told us anything about her. And so part of this is that the answers that a lot of women want to get on polygamy go into really the nature of eternity, the nature of eternal relationships, the nature of, um, things that have not been revealed yet. We just, we just simply don't know. We don't know um, how that's exactly going to work. And you see this answer also when people get sealed, and sometimes these sealings get messy when when there's divorce and someone's sealed to someone and someone's sealed to someone else and, and children come into the mix. And, and sometimes, the, you know, it gets very messy. And when these people ask, you know, who's going to be sealed to who in eternity and how is it all going to work out, it's the basic answer that... Um, you have to take it on a matter of faith and that things will work out and that God is understanding and merciful and all these things. And so I don't think we will ever get a full answer on on polygamy, on why um, it was revealed, on why it was taken away, on um, what exactly all went on during that time, specifically with polyandry, which is um, the hardest issue you have to deal with when when women would be married to someone but then be sealed to Joseph Smith. And I don't think that we'll ever really get full clarity on what 
what all went down and the nature of, you know, the eternities as far as relationships between men and women. Um, we have a lot more revelation about things that are essential for us in this life. And we simply don't know and have to take it on a matter of faith that God is supportive of families and merciful and understanding and that it will all work out. And so if you, if you can only be in the church and you have to have a 100% complete understanding of, of polygamy now, in the past, in the future, I don't think that we'll ever get there. Um, with that said, there are two, there, there is some clarity that I think that the church could, could get that would help women to take it on a matter of faith. Um, and what we see in the church is that there's these two messages in the church that exist and women don't really know which one is more right. There's one message in the church that we read when, for example, we're studying Lorenzo Snow right now and he had nine wives and 40 children and we hear stories as women in the church that some women were so holy and so great um, that they were happy when one of, when their husband would take on another wife because they were so happy that someone else was getting their endowments and getting to go to the temple and have that opportunity and that they were so altruistic and loving that they that they were happy they could share their husband so that um, someone else could go through the temple. And so there's that message in the church. And then you have, you know, our early women in the church who were faithful women and, and were, you know, married to a man who was a polygamist. And then you have on the other side, um, you have the message of together forever and you and your husband are together forever and it's you and your children and you're so happy and there's this kind of romanticism that goes with it. Um, and when you get married in the temple and that polygamy was in the past and this kind of thing. And as a woman preparing for, you know, this life, we're preparing for what's to come. We're preparing for the eternity. We're trying to make ourselves the best that we can in this test of life. And so it's very hard as a woman to, to know which one is more right for the here and now, not just, not just eternal questions that perhaps we're not ready, you know, to be answered yet. Some of this has to do with with today in that should I be preparing my heart that I would be pure enough to welcome another woman into my marriage or is that something of the past and I can look forward to this romantic of idea of me and my husband living together forever. And so I guess I I think that there is some clarity that can be done on, on polygamy that would help women in a faith crisis, um, women in faith crisis, a lot of times it is central to polygamy, that we can maybe have some some messages that clear up um, some of this to help women to um, know what we know about polygamy and some of the doctrine behind it, what we don't know and what, you know, we can, what questions are too big because they go into the nature of eternity and what to prepare for now. Um, and I think that that would help a lot rather than it be a hush-hush issue because the problem with it being a hush-hush issue is that if you were raised in the church and never have even heard of polygamy or don't 
even know that Joseph Smith was a polygamist, then when you find out, you feel like you've been lied to, and then you, and then, you know, you, the faith crisis seems all the more harder because you feel like the church was hiding it from you. You know, it seems like men really have trouble understanding the dread that some of the sisters feel over this issue when, when men hear about polygamy and whether it's in the life hereafter or whether it isn't. There's kind of this, well, you know, we'll figure it out when we get there. And yet, I think the only way to help, I guess, men understand it is to, when you pose the polyandry issue, all of a sudden the guy's like, well, wait a minute, that doesn't sound right. And really, it's the exact same issue just flipped around. Rather than you taking on more than one spouse, now somebody else in the church wants to be sealed to your spouse as well. And, and all of a sudden it becomes personal. Do you, so from a man's point of view asking you, how widespread do you think the dread is among the sisters fearing that, you know, their salvation may be at jeopardy if they're not willing to go along with polygamy and, and perhaps not being aware that this is not a clear cut thing that in the life hereafter, you know, the doctrine of the church doesn't, doesn't teach that that is necessarily the case and yet many sisters fear that. The the hard thing, and you can only really understand this unless you're, you sit in a relief society, we're studying Lorenzo Snow right now, and in his life, we talk about his nine wives, and in every woman's head, they're thinking, they're thinking about polygamy, they're thinking about what it means to them, they're thinking about their husbands and their children, they're thinking about it through the remainder of the lesson, but yet no one will ever... And I've never heard anyone ask. No one ever asks about it. We don't talk about it. We don't um, address it. But yet every woman in her heart is wondering about this um, specifically, and not just in an, you know, an internal sense, which we, uh, which has yet to be revealed, um, but also in the here and now, when you hear about, when we study um, the early leaders of the church and their wives and the thought that everyone is thinking is, should I be preparing to be like them? Is this the nature of the eternity? Is this, um, is this what I'm getting into here? And then, um, lots of questions then arise about, you know, a woman's self-worth, specifically a woman's worth in comparison to men in the gospel, which is much smaller. And then if you combine that with any kind of, you know, depression that we've talked about before, Wow, that is that is just really hard for a woman's self-worth to be able to, to work through. And if you don't have the resources through other women to talk about it and through other resources to work through it, it's it's just going to be, you know, devastating for a woman's self-worth. Right. So seeing that opening up the discussion will make a lot of this feeling subside or at least be able to have the resources to handle it and, and understand it within its within its time frame and environment and when it happened and why it happened. Mm-hmm. Why is it that none of the sisters want to talk about the elephant in the room and, and why, how, how do we get them to do that? How do we get them to acknowledge what everybody's thinking about but nobody wants to say and to move forward and start talking about it? I think everyone wants to talk about it when I talk um, in private with other women about it. Um, 
they're so starving to talk about it because we've heard it for, you know, how long, but no one ever says anything. And women, we are social creatures. We like to talk about everything. And so I don't think that women um, don't want to talk about it. I don't think that's the issue here. I think that the issue is is because in our manuals and in talks and in church resources, it's not talked about. We then get the idea that this is something that happened in the church, but we're not going to talk about it. And so I think the first step is going to have to be some clarification as best we can on the issue of polygamy and some resources and some help um, put out by the church. And then once women see these things, then, you know, they begin to say, hey, someone wrote about this. There was a talk about this. There was a book about this. There's this resource about this. Um, and if the church is putting this out, then it's okay to talk about. Awesome. Excellent. And, and I hope, again, just with most of these issues, I hope that happens because I, I don't understand the feelings that the sisters in the church have, but I certainly understand the why they feel it and the confusion over this principle being practiced a long time ago and not being practiced today. Yet men can still be, you know, if their spouse is deceased, they can still be sealed to another mm-hmm. sister. But our, our sisters can't do the same. And, and the confusion that kind of all that gives to our sisters as they worry and perhaps even, even fret and have a lot of anxiety over what's to be and what's to come. Um, I, I hope that we, we come up with a lot more resources to help them out in that, in that area. That concludes part one of my interview with Brittany Hartley. Be sure to check out part two. God bless. And may the Lord Come thou fount of every blessing, tune my heart to sing thy praise. Streams of mercy never ceasing, call for some.